right, John chapter 10 in our Bibles tonight. If we can, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 10, verse 19, down through verse number 23. And we'll be completing verse by verse through John 10 this evening. Let's look at these uh, five verses as we get started here. The Bible says, There was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem at the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple and Solomon's porch. Tonight's message is entitled this, Tension Between Jesus and the Jews. We're approaching the rest of Jesus here in the book of John. We're walking very much toward that. We're in the last year of Jesus' ministry here in John chapter 10, and as we'll see, tension is building toward that very moment. Let's pray. Lord God, help us tonight to uh, take a a handful of things from the message that will strengthen us, and Lord, sharpen our spiritual swords and prepare us as we go out to do spiritual work this week in and about the various places uh, uh, where we will go. Lord God, White Oak Baptist Church is to be that aircraft carrier that services the airplanes as they head out into the world uh, the rest of the week to serve you and, uh, Lord God, work for you and do what you intend. Lord, may we get exactly what we need here tonight from the message and from our time together as a church family as we get ready to launch out into the world and be bright lights in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our world is full of people who are hostile toward the name of Christ and His gospel. I would say the majority of people you meet are indifferent toward the gospel or don't have an opinion about the gospel. But the reality is that uh, there are people in this world that are growing in number and their voice is getting louder and louder. And they hate the name of Christ and they hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, Jesus came to this earth to do a few things. He came in part to uh, uh, give liberty to the captives, people who were bound in sin and held down by uh, sin's pain and sin's struggle and sin's habit. He came to heal the brokenhearted. Aren't you glad we serve a compassionate Savior who's there to help us when we're hurting and when we're struggling. And all, I imagine all of those times Jesus walked down the streets of a city and someone came to them with a broken heart or a, a loved one who was distraught and Jesus stopped to look them in the eye and show compassion and care. He came to uh, help those who were wounded and Jesus came into a broken, hostile environment, but all the same, He came to call His sheep unto Himself, there was never a man more meek and lowly that graced this earth than the Lord Jesus Christ. He was meek. He was lowly. Uh, He was humble. He was the servant of all servants. He got down and washed his disciples' feet. He was meek-mannered. I have heard people say, uh, listen, I, I want you to be more angry when you preach. And I want you to uh, call out sin. And I want you to uh, let them have it. And that was not the nature of Jesus. In fact, Jesus uh, was meek and lowly in His spirit. And each person that Jesus came in contact with mattered to Him. He 
looked them in the eye and he loved them in that moment. And they were everything in that moment that he ne- they needed him to be. And Jesus was really only hard on the Pharisees. And so if you're a Pharisee, then I'm going to be hard on you. If not, I'm going to show you the love of Jesus and I want you to know the love of God. But while Jesus was meek and lowly, and while Jesus was kind and he came to set at liberty the captive and heal the brokenhearted, by no means does that mean that Jesus was a weak pushover. Jesus had a backbone. And Jesus had no problem standing up to those who were wrong and who those who were hostile, and he had no problem uh, looking hostility in the eye and holding his ground. And we don't need jellyfish Christians in the world today. You say, well, what is a jellyfish Christian? Well, a jellyfish doesn't have a spine. And we don't need Christians who are spineless. We need Christians who know what they believe and stand by what they believe and don't bend on what they believe. Christians who know truth and they know how to articulate truth and uh, they know uh, not to back away from truth. Listen, ever since the Garden of Eden, truth has been under assault. Satan came along and he questioned truth there with Adam and Eve. Before he ever lied to Eve, he uh, questioned the truth. And ever since then, truth has been under assault. And uh, Christians are too busy giving in and acquiescing in order to get along. Going along to get along, and we need Christians who say, No, here is the line, this is truth, I'm going to stand on what is truth, and I'm not going to back down. I believe that many Christians today are too quick to give in or shut down when they ought to be standing up and they ought to be speaking out for what they know to be right. We let sin go on right under our nose and we look the other way and pretend as though it didn't happen. We let sin go on right in front of us and we'll make some kind of passing joke in order to fit in with those around us, whether we're around the water cooler at work or sitting around the lunch table at work. Uh, Christians need to learn how to stand up for what is right. Maybe you're uh, at the store and something goes down and you know that it's wrong and you know you could speak up and you know you should speak up. Don't just stand by and let evil happen in front of you uh, without saying a word. Somebody takes a shot at your God and your Savior and you just let it go without any comment. There's one thing that makes me very, very uh, upset when I'm, I've got the television on. I don't watch a lot of TV, but when I do have the television on and someone takes God's name in vain, generally I just shut the TV off and walk away. I don't want to hear that. That's my God. And you're going to talk about him that way. You're going to throw his name around as though it's meaningless. I've been around church members who attend this church who throw God's name around in a way that's loose. And, oh, man, I want to be kind to you, and I want to love you, and I don't want to back down from loving you. But at the same time, you need to be careful with the name of my Savior. We need Christians who take a stand for what is right. We need Christians who are not afraid to, to look at hostility in the eye and stand by what they believe. Now, let me say tonight, you can be the nicest person in the world. But if you stand with Jesus, people are going to oppose you simply for the fact that they hate who he is. And Jesus talked about this in John 15. He said, if they hated me, They're going to hate you. He didn't say they might hate you. 
He said they're going to hate you. Now, there was a day and age in the U.S. of A. where it was more popular to love Jesus than it is right now. It is no longer popular to love Jesus in our culture. And if you stand for what's right and it's very evident, obvious to others that you love Jesus, you're going to make some enemies along the way. Even if you smile all the way through it. If you stand firm on what you believe, there's going to be some people that don't like you. I I happen to believe that our problem here in America is not that there aren't Christians. The problem here in America is that Christians are asleep. They're asleep. We're not speaking up. We're not standing up. Um, What percentage of our country legitimately would label themselves with that alphabet soup? Two or three or four percent? I'm not talking about the teenagers wrapped up in a fad. I'm talking about adults. But boy, their voice is loud. What if Christians were as as vocal about their faith as the wicked are about their wickedness? You ever stop and think about that? What if we actually went to the polls and we actually all voted for candidates who more closely held to what we believe. Look, I, I told you, or Pastor Andrew told you the other week, the 815 crowd heard me say it, but politicians, I'm not a fan of politicians. In fact, I hold my nose every time I vote. I mean that. I, I do. Um, especially with the options we've been given at the polls the last few uh, election cycles. Just hold your nose and, and pull for somebody. Okay? But what if every Christian were to go and vote for a politician that best stood what they believe? What if every Christian were to actually live like a Christian and speak up? When they saw things. Here Jesus is loving his sheep. Here Jesus is helping people. All all Jesus is doing is being meek and lowly and healing the brokenhearted and uh, setting free those who are in captivity. And he's being attacked for it. Here's what I know. You don't have to go look for a fight. If you're going to be a good Christian, the fight will come to you. Here's what I know. If you're going to love God and you're going to stand up for what's right and you're going to actually live the virtues of the Bible, somebody's going to take exception to it somewhere along the way in your life. The Bible still says uh, that all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is a guarantee to happen. Now again, there was a day in our culture where it was hard to find someone who would oppose you, but the darker our world gets, the brighter your light ought to be, and the more someone ought to take exception to it. And so you can be nice, and you can have a kind disposition, but if you're going to stand with Jesus, people are not going to like it. Let's look at the contention with the the uh, the, the Jews and Jesus here tonight, and let's look at four basic thoughts here. If I could get a little bit more volume on my lapel, I'd appreciate that. All right. Number one, notice the division among the Jews. Number one, the division among the Jews. Let me give you here an A and a B below all four points tonight. Let's jump right in here. Now, uh, before I give you letter A, before we jump right in, um, we looked at John 10. We looked at the beginning of the chapter. We looked at some of the meat of the chapter where Jesus is talking about his sheep, how they come in and out of the sheep gate, how he is the door. Uh, we looked at how that Jesus is speaking kindly about them and saying that they know his voice. There's an intimacy there. There's a warmness there. Uh, there is a closeness there. There is an obedience there. We're going to relook at some of those things yet again tonight as we look at this passage yet from another perspective. And here 
here Jesus is speaking and not everyone appreciates what he had to say. Letter A, look, look at this. Some believed he was a lunatic. Some believed he was a lunatic. Look at John chapter 10 and look at verse 19. There was a division, therefore, among the Jews. And that word Jews can define uh, the Israelites as a whole, but usually it means the Jewish leaders. Okay, so there's a, a division among the Jewish leaders for these sayings. And many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Well, we've heard this before. This is not the first time Jesus has been accused of being demonically possessed. Turn back just a couple of chapters to chapter 8 and look with me at verse number 48. You may remember in chapter 8, Jesus had the woman that was caught in adultery brought to him and he handled that masterfully. And, and then he declared himself to be the light of the world and got into a long back and forth with the Pharisees about that. And as he's owning them in this intellectual discussion, finally they uh, lose their minds. And look at verse 48, then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan, that's a racial slur, and hast a devil. So uh, they're losing the debate. So what do they do? They throw out a racial slur and they call him a devil. Well, how about Luke chapter 11, verse 15, where Jesus had cast demons out of somebody, uh, they come around and the Bible says, but some of them said, he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devil. So let me tell you what people do when they cannot win a debate on its merit. They resort to name calling. That's what they do. All right. Name calling. Uh, have you, you ever worked the church nursery or worked the children's church and you hear a kid call another kid a name? Some of you have little children at home. I see some little children scattered throughout the room here. And, you know, when you can't win a debate anymore, you just start name-calling. And uh, every now and then I'll watch a theological debate on, uh, uh, on, on the inter- Internet. And what I see is that uh, when one side starts to lose, they start to get really emotional and they just start to throw names around. And if they're not criticizing the person directly, they criticize the sect of people that they're from. Now, again... The Pharisees had no shot here. They are going up against Jesus, who is known eternally as the Word. The Word. You're going to have a debate with the Word. You're going to lose every time because He is He is the Word. And so they, uh, they cannot defeat Him on the merits of their argument. And so they label Him as a lunatic. And you know what? People today are still doing that same thing. They seek to discredit Jesus. They seek to put him down. Uh, they seek to pretend as though that Jesus either didn't exist. There's actually people out there that claim that Jesus never existed. There's actually more historical proof that Jesus lived and existed than there is some of our earliest of presidents and uh, more documented proof. But Jesus did indeed exist. And some want to dismiss his uh, existence. Others want to just claim that, well, he, maybe he was a good man, but he wasn't the Lord. And let me just say to you today that Jesus couldn't have been a good man because he claimed to be God. Either he was who he claimed to be or he was a liar. Either he was who he claimed to be or he was crazy. Letter B, we see some believed he was Lord. So there's tension building between Jesus and the Jews, but honestly there's tension building between the Jews and the Jews. Look at, uh, look at verse 21 of John 10. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath the devil... Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Now remember, this chapter, chapter 10, is on the heels of chapter 9, where Jesus took that man who was born blind at birth 
and gave him his sight. And boy, did that create quite, quite a stir. Uh, the neighbors began to see this guy who had been born blind. Everyone is assuming either he had sinned or his parents had sinned. And, and uh, uh, they, they began to see he actually can see now. He got, how did you get your sight back? Well, a man named Jesus gave me my sight back. And he lands in the Pharisee's court and is eventually excommunicated from the temple because he believes Jesus to be a prophet, later believes him to be the Lord. And others saw this miracle and thought, this is logically thought, this is not something that a, a bad person would do. Imagine if you had a blind man in your family and some street preacher walking down the street that was discredited by this church gave sight back to your relative and then you came to church and Pastor Lejeune said, well, don't follow him, he's crazy. You know what you'd say? Pastor, I love you, but that man gave sight back to my, my nephew or to my brother or to my father. You know what? He can't be a bad guy if he did that. How many think that's pretty solid logic? All right? If that happens, I want to meet the guy. All right? Um, Jesus, they're looking at him and saying, he can't be all that bad. He gave sight back to that guy. The guy that you all kicked out of the, the synagogue, he's still loving on and he's still helping. Some believed him to be Lord. Now, they were not quite ready to declare him to be Messiah yet, although that's coming. Hang on. But they were also not willing to say that he was demonically possessed, a demonically possessed lunatic either. He had healed a man they knew was born blind. Turn over to John chapter 10 with me again and look at verse number 22. Now, there seems from my studies to be a gap of time in, uh, that passes in this passage, all right? It seems to me that John took two different teachings of Jesus about sheep and he brought them together. And um, the reason why I say that is if you believe that John 10, beginning of John 10, happens on the heels of John 9, that's around a synagogue. And then John 10 now, here in verse 22, Jesus is at the temple. And it would seem to be that sheep talk came back up and uh, uh, battling with the Pharisees came back up. And so uh, these two passages were sewn together into one. And here's what sort of gives us a sense that maybe verse 22 on is a different setting because number one, it's marked with a paragraph marker. So this is a new thought. And two, we're given a timeline of when this was. Look at 22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication. You see that there? Uh, we're given a timeline and we're given a location right in the middle of the chapter. Now, if you think that all of John 10 flows as one passage, you may be right. That's fine. I really don't want to debate anybody over it, but it would seem that way. Uh, when was this? This was winter, all right? Verse 23, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So this was the feast uh, of the, uh, the celebration of the victory of Maccabees, Judas Maccabees, to free the uh, temple from enemy rule way back in 164 A.D. We now know this holiday to be what? Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah, okay? And so Jesus shows up for the celebration of Hanukkah. He is in the uh, uh, Feast of Dedications. He's there in the temple courtyard where Solomon's porch is. And it would seem that John has stitched these together because of the analogy of the sheep. Things are coming to a 
head, some four months uh, 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 later, Jesus is going to be crucified. So this is in December of uh, the year, right before Jesus is going to die. Four months later at Passover, Jesus is going to hang on a cross. Are you with me here? This is winter. We know Hanukkah to be on our calendar as December. And so this is four months prior to the death of Jesus. Jesus would have died in the month of April. So we see the division among the Jews. Let's move on. Number two, notice the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is going to defend himself as uh, certainly to be God and not to be some lunatic, crazy person. Letter A, we see his works, his works. Look at verse number 24 of John chapter 10. Then came the Jews round about him. So they've surrounded him here uh, in in the courtyard of the temple. And said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Quit playing games with us. Quit talking in circles around us. Quit talking past us. Quit talking in vain terms. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Look at 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works, look look at this, the works that I do... In my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So there's a little bit of a cat and mouse game that Jesus is playing here with the Pharisees. Uh, he does not come out in this passage either and directly declare himself to be the Christ, but he sure does strongly imply it. Now, in previous passages that we, we did a we did a dramatic reading up here on our platform, Jesus is again talking over their heads. He's talking past them. And there's still a little bit of that going on plainly. He does not come out and say that my Father is God in heaven. He just speaks of His Father more in broad terms. But you know what He's saying? If I could, if I could just boil it down here, He's saying, do you see the miracles I'm doing? You see all these miracles I'm doing? I get the power to do that from my Father. Well, who is the only father in the universe that can give you the power to do miracles? Clearly, he's talking about God. While he's not saying that, he is saying that. Are you with me here? How uh, how did Jesus objectively credential himself? Well, he did this, and you can write these things down. They're not going to be on the screen, but you can write these things down. He credentialed himself through his teachings. Through his teachings. Turn back over to Matthew chapter 7 with me and look at verse number 28. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 28. And look with me at verses 28 and 29. Here, Jesus has just got through teaching, uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's been a large group of people that gathered. There was a buzz around this new, um, this new uh, rabbi and uh, possibly prophet. And he stands up, not, they, not, the people not knowing who he is. And he teaches uh, teachings that just blow everyone away. This is a sermon like none other. A uh, sermon densely packed with truth that would be unpacked by theologians for still being unpacked by theologians realistically thousands of years later. Look how Matthew summarizes the reaction of the people in verse 28. And it came to pass, chapter 7, when Jesus had ending the, ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Verse 29, For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And Jesus would go city to city stumping or preaching and giving out truth. And you know what? Every time... He stopped to teach. Crowds gathered and were amazed at his teaching. Amazed at his teaching. 
People couldn't get enough. They just ate it up. They were hungry for the truth. How did he credential himself as the Messiah? Well, through his teaching. How about just this one? How about through his life? Back in chapter number 8, he looks at them and says, If you know of anything wrong I've done, tell me. I want to hear it. I want to hear it. Give me one. They couldn't do it. They could not list one sin that Jesus had done. Uh, Tell me what work I've done that's wrong. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was perfect. You know, even even his brothers, James and, and, and Jude, did not believe in Jesus in the beginning of his ministry. Um, but do you know what both James and Jude wrote in their epistles? They put James, servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. They both came around and said, yep, we knew it all along. We knew our brother was perfect. We knew he was sinless. Look, if you get your brothers to buy in and call you the Messiah, I've got four brothers, and I can tell you about their faults, and they can tell you about mine on a deep level. Your brothers buy in and say, yep, that guy right there, he was God on earth. I lived with him. His bedroom was across the hall, or I slept in the same room as him, and I went to school with him, and and I watched him grow up. Uh, Jesus' life proved that he was indeed the Messiah. But how about this one? Turn back over to John, John chapter 21. He did not just only prove that he was the Messiah through his teachings and through the way he lived his life, but he also did so through his miracles. Now, I heard someone say one time that Jesus did not need to perform one miracle to prove that he was God. And while I agree with the sentiment, Jesus did not need to do anything. He was God. You know, the reason why Jesus did do miracles was to prove that he was God. In fact, he's going to point that out multiple times here in John 10 as we go about. We already saw one instance of it. Um, There are, from what I can gather in my studies, there are 42 distinct miracles of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. 42 distinct miracles. Now, some of these miracles are recorded across multiple Gospels, but if you take the miracles of Jesus and you lay them out, there are 42 distinct miracles in the Gospels. And uh, many of these were, were, are well-documented and witnessed by dozens and sometimes even thousands of people. By the time you get to John chapter 10, Conservatively, Jesus had already performed 35 of the 42 recorded miracles in Scripture. 35 of the 42 recorded miracles. So for these Jews to say that he had a devil was highly, highly dishonest. But John tells us at the end of his book that there were countless others that are not recorded in the Bible. Look at John 21. In verse 25, John finishes his book this way. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Wow! What a statement. Jesus was healing people that even the disciples didn't totally know about. There were connections going on between Jesus and people in the crowds mentally, and Jesus was helping them and healing them, likely. Oh, the impact that the life of Jesus made. 
Now, remember back when John the Baptist sent his disciples to question Jesus on whether or not he was the Messiah? You remember that? John the Baptist is in prison. He sends his disciples out to question Jesus. What did Jesus tell them to go back and report? He said, tell them what, tell him what you have seen. Tell them that the blind receive their sight. Tell them that the lame are made to walk. Tell him that the poor have the gospel preached unto them. What did Jesus do, use to prove that he was indeed God? He pointed to his works. He pointed to his miracles. Letter A, we see in proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ, we see his works. But letter B, we see his words. His words. His works and now his words. Go back to John 10. Look at verse number 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, he points to his works. Look down at verse 30. Look down at verse 30. Jesus says this, I and my Father are one. Now, over and over and over again, Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah. Those who were searching believed and entered into his flock. What does Jesus offer the sheep? Oh, this is really good. Let me give you three things Jesus offers the sheep. Oh, I hope you'll write these down because, boy, this just jumped out at me as I was studying and, 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 and looking at Scripture closely here in John 10. I have just been in love with John 10, 27 through 30 lately, doing a lot of reading and adding it into extra sermons and, and, and studying it and enjoying it. Let me share with you some of the, the little bit of the treasure I've pulled out of these verses. What does Jesus offer his sheep? Notice he offers a loving relationship, a loving relationship. Look at verse 27. Here, and, and again, I want, to be, I want to just make sure you understand this. We read these verses as though Jesus is just sitting on a hillside, uh, maybe with his arm on a rock, and he's teaching without any pressure on him. Jesus gives these truths while in the fire of the Pharisees, while in a discussion with tension in the air, Jesus gives these loving words here to, uh, to the Pharisees about his flock. Look at 27. My sheep... Hear my voice, and I know them. Do you know if you're a child of God, you've been saved, and you have entered into His flock, do you know that the Lord knows you deeply? He knows you. He loves you. I had a church member in my office a few months back, and I was working through that church member with some uh, personal problems in their life, and I looked at that church member and I said, I have a couple of adjectives that I can use to describe pretty much any church member that is part of White Oak Baptist Church. And the reason why I'm able to do that is because God's given me a pastor's heart. But secondly, I pray for the entire church family every week. And I have tried to take the time to get to know each one of you on some level and have some form of spiritual discernment about what's going on. And I said, do you want to know what adjectives I use to describe you uh, or understand you to be? And they said, please, I'm not going to tell you what I said because you might figure out which one it was. Amen. Uh, but um, I shared and the person said, yeah, that's correct. That's true. You know why? Because it is my duty as this under shepherd of this church to know the flock. Do you know that I might know you on this level? The Lord knows everything about you. 
everything about you. You know what? Sometimes I've had a perception of people and I've been wrong. But the Lord is never wrong. He loves you. Um, you ever had someone find out a dark secret of your life? Maybe it was a, a spouse who uh, happened upon a problem you had or maybe you, uh, as you were getting married, you opened up your heart and said, I have this in my past and I have this struggle. Maybe, uh, maybe you had an embarrassing situation happen in your life. And those around you that saw it were so embarrassed by it that the temptation would have been to back away and distance themselves. And yet the people that know you the best, they embrace you the closest. The Lord knows every single sinful thought you think. He knows you, yet He loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. Part of the human experience is the desire to know and to be known. In fact, intimacy has been described as the desire to know and to be known. And the Lord wants intimacy with you, His sheep. He wants you to know Him, and He wants to uh, He wants uh, to know you. There ought to be a desire where you say, God, I want to know you more, and Lord, I want to be known by you more. And my friend, the Lord knows you on a deep level, and He loves you, but not only a loving relationship. Look at John ten twenty seven, and we see a living relationship. Oh, this is rich right here. Look at 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Read that next phrase with me. Ready? And they follow me. Say it with me. And they follow me. Oh boy. Here we go. If you don't follow Jesus, then you are not one of His sheep. You hear me? There's a whole lot of American Christians who are going to go to hell. And I use that word Christian loosely. Because they say that sometime in their past, they prayed a prayer. But there's nothing in their life whatsoever that shows that they're truly a Christian. Now, I am not the guy who's going to judge whether or not you're saved. It's not my place. It's not my place. But I'm going to tell you categorically, there's a bunch of people who prayed the sinner's prayer and never actually put their faith and trust in Christ. And they don't follow Jesus. You see, to be in the flock of God means that you are subservient and subjective to the shepherd. And when he says, come, you come. When he says, lay and rest, you lay and rest. When he says, I want you to do this and I don't want you to do that. Oh, this is a living relationship. A living relationship. But notice lastly here, not only is it a loving relationship and a living relationship, notice it is a lasting relationship. Look at verse 28 and verse number 29. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Those who believe they can lose their salvation really do squirm in their seat over these verses right here. Because these verses could not be more clear. It is eternal life. It is a gift that's given. Uh, it's a promise that you'll never, never 
perish. And that you're locked up, wrapped up in the Son's hand, and then wrapped up in the Father's hand. It is a lasting relationship. You see, the Lord Jesus, He wants to offer you a loving relationship, a living relationship, and a lasting relationship. Jesus is the Word made flesh. He is the eternal Word of God that has always existed. Now, the Pharisees rejected His works. They were offended by His words. But all of the claims that He made, but of all the claims that He made, rather, I and my Father are one, may have been the one that set them off the most. They did not like that. They could not stand that. Oh, it made them angry that He would claim to be at one with the Father. Now let me just take just a moment here and address John chapter 10 in verse 30. We do not believe that God the Father morphed into God the Son and then upon His resurrection went back and morphed into God the Father. No, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, that the Word was with God, distinct, the Word was God, divine. That word with means Face to face. We know that, uh, the, the Bible, the Bible teaches that, uh, God is one per, rather one being and wrapped up in three persons. One being wrapped up in three persons. You say, well that doesn't make any sense. It does not have to make sense to our simple minded brains, but that's what the Bible teaches. Furthermore, we don't begin with the Old Testament and then try to, uh, uh, get the New Testament to make sense. No, no, no. We start with the New Testament, which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and then we work backwards to understand the Old Testament. Now, how do we know that there are three uh, uh, that make up one? Well, we know that God the Father is described as Jehovah, and God the Son is described as Jehovah, and God the Holy Spirit is described as Jehovah. And so we know that there are three persons that make up one being, and uh, again, uh, uh, it is a matter of compound unity. Compound unity. And so we know that God is three persons that make up one being. What is Jesus saying here in John 10.30? Is He saying that He and His Father are all the same being? Those that believe that God morphed down into the Son and that morphs into the Holy Spirit... Boy, that was a really interesting trick he pulled off at the baptism of Jesus where you have God the Father's voice speaking, God the Son in the water, and God the Holy Spirit descending in a dove. How did He do that? Up up in heaven, then in the water, then the dove, and then back up in heaven. And then that, That's just, that's crazy. Alright? There's multiple places in the Bible where you find all three parts of the Trinity referenced as distinct and right in the same passage, if not the same verse. And so we know that Jesus was God. And by the way, the Pharisees knew what He was claiming. The Pharisees knew right here in John 10.30 that Jesus was declaring Himself to be the Messiah. And how did He respond to that? How did they respond to that? Number three, we see the defiance of the Pharisees. The defiance of the Pharisees. Now we're doing. Uh, we're, we're on an intellectual. Uh, uh, we're on an intellectual journey here. So please stay engaged with me uh, because uh, I'm going somewhere with this tonight. Notice letter A. Their rejection. Their rejection. Look at verse John chapter ten. Look at verse thirty one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them. Many good works, here, here we go, him pointing back to his miracles. Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They refused 
to believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world. They flat out refused. It did not matter what proof they had been presented. It did not matter that they had nothing uh, to pin Him on. They had come with the conclusion that He was not God and nothing else was acceptable. Turn over to, or rather, let me just reference these to you. John chapter 1, verse 49, we find Nathaniel who believe. John chapter 3, verse 16, uh, coupled with John 19, 39, we find Nicodemus believed. John chapter 4, verse 39, the woman at the well along with the Samaritans believed. In John chapter 5, verse 9, the lame man believed. In John chapter 9, verse 38, the blind man uh, from his birth believed. But the Pharisees, all those Pharisees who had been presented all of the same things, they refused to believe that Jesus was God. Please understand tonight that God is sovereign and that God is no respecter of persons. Did you hear me? He does not elect some to go to heaven and send the rest to hell. God is no respecter of persons. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. His character is the same toward everyone. You say, did God want the hard-hearted Pharisees to be saved? Yes, He did. Yes, He did. But He knew that they had rejected Him. I've heard people bring up uh, all sorts of angles on this, and someone say, well, then why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Why did God hate Esau? And on and on and on. What about Judas Iscariot? It seemed like he was doomed to fail from the beginning. And they pull out these edge cases and and throw them uh, at you. Let me just say tonight that uh, the sun that softens the butter hardens the clay. What does that mean? That means that the same sun that shines down on a plate of butter and brings that to a, 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 a soft state is the same sun that hits clay and hardens that material. You know what? God is sovereign. He never changes. But the material of heart that we present Him is either going to be brought tender and soft to salvation or is going to be hardened. Uh, is the clay hardened by the sun? Yes. Is it the sun that hardened the clay? Yes. But that was the material that was provided to the sun. God is perfect in every way. God is the same toward all all of those uh, who uh, are on earth, some present a heart that's hard and material that becomes hardened. Others come with a tender heart and become more tender as they're around the Lord. Now, uh, listen, the Lord loved Nathaniel and he loved the Samaritans and he loved the blind man just as much as he loved the Pharisees. But you know what the Pharisees did? They hardened their heart and they rejected God. Uh, God does not begin the process of rejecting anybody. You know how folks get rejected? They reject the Lord, and then the Lord rejects them. And then they reject the Lord, and the Lord rejects them. What's going on here with the Pharisees? Does the Lord love them? For crying out loud, He hung on the cross, and He looked down at them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But yet they rejected, and they rejected and they rejected. Here they are, being the antagonist in the story, hating on the Lord, declaring Him to be a lunatic and demon-possessed, and Jesus just keeps on loving. Letter B, we see Jesus riddle. Jesus riddle. Look with me at verse number 34. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have this passage totally figured out right here, alright? I studied and dug and studied and dug and 
the Lord has me a little bit perplexed on this one as well. But we're going to look at it and talk about it as far as we can. And maybe some of you here, uh, some of you armchair theologians have a deeper angle on this. You can share with me after church. All right, look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, it is not written in your law. Is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came... And the Scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe me not, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Turn over to Psalm chapter 82 and verse number 6. Psalm 82. Here, uh, his comeback at them for declaring him to be blasphemous, declaring himself to be God, his comeback to them is that in Psalm, the uh, psalmist said, and they knew their Bible, that all of us are gods, and that God declares all of us to be gods. So look at Psalm 82 and verse 6 here. I have said, ye are gods... And all of you are children of the Most High. Well, this seems odd, doesn't it? What's this all about? Well, I did some digging and some studying. And again, I don't know that I have a, a, a perfect answer to this. Um, if you read Psalm 82 in its entirety, the Bible is talking about judges. Judges uh, on the earth. And the word here translated gods in Psalms 82 verse Psalm 82 6 is the root word Elohim are all of you familiar with the term Elohim you've heard that ter- that word before Elohim uh, it's ascribed to God in some instances in other instances it's translated in the Bible to be the word judge judge uh, in fact earlier in this very chapter the word Elohim is translated Judge, but here in verse 6, it is translated as little g, gods. And so, uh, why was it translated to be the word gods, both in the Old Testament, here in Psalm 82, 6, and then in the New Testament, when Jesus quoted or referenced back to this passage, I would say this, that verse is properly translated, uh, little g, gods. And uh, here's the conclusion I have come to, all of mankind that sits in God's place, and, and 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 all of mankind that judges on God's behalf, they act with God-like power. All of the power to judge comes from God, and we're acting in God's place. And so I believe this. I believe Psalms 82.6 is translated God's and comes across that way, and that it's used this way by Jesus so that he could throw a riddle at the Pharisees and leave them with nothing to say. All right? Uh, he stumps them. Uh, you're blasphemous. You're declaring yourself to be gods. Well, go back to Psalm 82, Pharisees. You know your Bible so well. What about there where all of the children of the Most High are declared to be gods? So they knew that they could not pin him intellectually because Jesus outwitted them at every turn. At every turn. Listen. Here's one point I want to draw out, and then we're going to look at point four and be done. If someone is opposed to your faith, it does not matter how good your argument is. They are not going to listen to you. You hear me? Jesus stood across from these Jews. He was God in the flesh, and they rejected his words anyway. 
Sometimes it's not about winning the argument. It's just about holding your ground and moving forward and doing what's right. Number four, notice lastly the departure of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 39, John chapter 10, verse 39. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. Now, John is very vague on this, but I wonder what that looked like. We know that when Jesus went back to Nazareth and uh, he declared himself to be the Son of God there in the synagogue, they took him out to the edge of the city and attempted to throw him off a cliff. And the Bible says he just walked right in between them and they could do nothing about that. So uh, it must have been some sort of divine restraint. And then here uh, in John, multiple times they try to stone him. They actually bring stones to stone him, but they, he just slips right through the crowd and they can't get him. Again, here in John 10, I, I wonder what that must have looked like if there wasn't some kind of divine restraint, divine pushing back, the knocking of the rocks out of the hand. Why it was they could not grab him. We know here he was in Solomon's uh, temple or Solomon's porch and um, uh, there in the, uh, the courthouse of the temple and he slips away. Letter A, notice the symbolism of his retreat. Look at verse number 40 of John 10. And went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized and there he abode and Many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. So this would be Jesus' last time going away from Jerusalem prior to his arrest and crucifixion. In fact, John chapter 11 is where he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then from there we enter right in to Holy Week. So this is Jesus' last, uh, last retreat, his last break away from Jerusalem prior to all that. But we are left to wonder why it was he chose to go back to John the Baptist's ministry headquarters. John had long been dead and gone. Look at John chapter 1, verse 28 with me. Or I'll read it for you, rather. These things were done in Beth Abara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. So we don't really know where Beth Abara was. There's some speculation that it was 20 miles on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, no one has exactly locked down where this location would have been. We know that John the Baptist came out of the wilderness and he baptized there in the Jordan River. Uh, but Jesus, nonetheless, he retreats out to a remote place and people follow him there. One thing I find interesting about this passage is that John the Baptist worked very hard to demote himself and promote Christ, to demote himself and promote Christ. John chapter 3, verse 30, I have claimed as my life's verse for many, many years, he must increase, but I must decrease. Say it with me, church. He must increase, but I must decrease. John never did a miracle. Not one. Not one. But you know what the people counted him as? They counted him as a prophet. And here, Jesus goes back to the place where John the Baptist got his start. And you know what the people did? They saw that as him being qualified because John the Baptist had put their stamp on Jesus. And even in the face of all of this uh, conflict and all this tension and all this division and all this attacking and all of this mudslinging, Jesus goes back to the place of uh, the man who had qualified him and baptized him into ministry and many, many, many people follow him there as a result. So what happened? Letter B, we see the salvation of many Jews. Look at John chapter 10, verse 42. And many believed on him there. 
You know, when you're doing your devotions, that verse can just slip right past you. But that is the climax of the entire chapter. Many believed on... Who were those that believed on Him there? There were people in the Jewish pharisaical ranks that broke away from the Pharisees and followed Him out to that retreat and said, we have seen enough, we have, uh, we have heard enough, we believe that you are who you claim to be, and they got saved. Part of the reason why the Jews were growing desperate and had Him arrested and killed was because members of their own ranks were falling off left and right and believing. Again, John 11, uh, more Jews are going to fall away from the ranks at the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and now the Jews really get desperate to have Him arrested. You know what? Uh, one thing I, I, I left out uh, of my notes here, but I'll, I'll get it in here in the conclusion. Back in John chapter 10, I believe it's verse 9, Jesus declares Himself to be the door. The door. Do you know what a door does? It divides. Because when it's closed, there are those who are in the room, and there are those who are outside of the room. He said, I am the door. I am the door. Christian, you cannot placate everybody. Christian, you can't win over everybody. Christian, you can't be friends with everybody. Nor should you try to be. You need to stand for what's right. You need to do what's right. Now, be sweet about it. But stand for what's right and do what's right. And if there are those who decide they need to divide from you, well, so let it be. Let's let's be men and women with a backbone. Let's be men and women who stand on what we believe. And we're not going to cave to the pressure. We're not going to acquiesce to the culture. No, we're going to stand on truth and let, uh, let, let things be where they are. Let's do right. Let's stand with the Lord. And as a result... People will believe and get saved. Here's what I think. I think that as, as the world gets darker, those churches that stand closest to the truth are going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Because churches who follow in, cave in, and give to the culture, people aren't looking for that. There's no hope there. There's no difference from the world. I want White Oak Baptist Church to be a place with Christians that are in it that talk different and walk different and dress different, and behave different, and have a different demeanor, and a different attitude. And people say, What's, what makes you different? Well, I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a genuine follower. I'm not perfect, but I'm a genuine follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I think? I want to go worship the Lord where you worship the Lord. And boy, let's really see this thing grow Because we're not trying to build this kingdom, we're trying to build that kingdom. Amen? But that means that you have to have a backbone. That means that you have to do what's right. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this evening. Lord God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to know the truth. Help us to stand on truth. Lord God, help us not to be so worried about fitting in with the culture around us that we're not willing to take a stand. Thank you, Jesus, for being that perfect example of a meek and lowly servant, but yet a man who did not back down in the face of animosity. Lord God, your words and your works spoke of your testimony. Lord, we're not going to walk around and do miracles, but may other people see our works, and may they glorify our Father in heaven. May they hear our words. May they be pleased at what they hear and be drawn to truth. 
Lord, may many people believe because of the way we live our lives and, Lord, the words that come out of our mouths. Help us to be men and women who follow you, who are worthy of our life. In Jesus' name we pray.